Hello and welcome everyone to the 11th episode of our weekly podcast, India Colonized, where we discuss legends and stories from our colonial past. I am your host, Umar Haq, and today we are going to talk about the Popper's Pilgrimage, the scenes of Hajj, a sacred annual pilgrimage of Muslims to the city of Mecca in Arabia during the British Raj in India. And we are going to talk about the insecurities of the government of India, which it had when it came to any regulations with regards to religious obligation of Indians. In 1886, the government of India described a dilemma in their correspondence with Thomas Cook and Son. They elaborated on the efforts taken by them from time to time to alleviate the discomfort experienced by Muslims during the journey from India to Hijaz. They recognized the sufferings experienced during these travels, especially by the poor class Muslims, and wished to take action that would provide relief to them. However, this, they believed, had to be done in a restricted nature. This was because the government of India did not wish to interfere directly in the matters of pilgrimage, which Muslims considered to be a religious obligation, especially not after the mutiny of 1857. What could have been the solution to this problem? One of the approaches to the problem could have been to place conditions directly on the pilgrims who intended to do the Hajj by requiring them to make a minimum deposit with the authorities to prove that they could afford the journey or that they could purchase a round-trip ticket back. This was a step that was often taken by other states with large Muslim population. But the government of India felt that a direct restriction on the mobility of the poorer pilgrims might spark a violent response among Indian Muslims. Unable to make any direct intervention, the government of India formulated a doctrine of indirect intervention. So here, the government decided that rather than imposing restrictions on poorer pilgrims, British officials attempted to reform the business of Hajj. As a result, British reforms were primarily aimed at cleaning up the pilgrimage shipping industry and its associated network of ticketing brokers. On one hand, the administrator hoped that by tightening the regulation of the pilgrimage shipping industry, they could eliminate the worst instances of overcrowding and squalid conditions, which had been identified as one of the greatest factors contributing to the spread of cholera. On the other hand, by licensing ticket brokerage, they hoped to provide pilgrims with measures of consumer protection, protection against aggressive touts, pricing scams and coercive monopolies. The strategy was also aimed to require ship owners to make capital investment in their vessels in order to meet new legal requirements for both health and other conditions. The aim here was that through the strategy, it would make necessary for the ship owners to have a cleaner, larger and better equipped steamships which would necessarily lead for the ship owners to raise their ticket prices, 
whether the colonial officials admitted it or not, raising and fixing prices was the cornerstone of indirect intervention. If direct measures prohibiting poorer pilgrims from setting out to Mecca were too dangerous, the only other option was to raise the standard of travel in such a way that either it eliminated unsanitary conditions or it prized the poorest pilgrims out of the market altogether. Poor pilgrims were certainly victims of the strategy. However, they were not the enemy in this equation. The true targets of the government's doctrine of indirect intervention were Muslim shipping interests and their associated brokerage network. By the early 1880s, the pilgrimage had become thoroughly commercialized and competitive in nature. From the perspective of the authorities, however, the competitive nature of the pilgrimage industry was merely an evidence of how this disordered the entire industry was. It was very complex that even in the British view, they were not able to understand how to deal with it. It was a complex of indigenous shipping interests and brokers and an inherently unscrupulous system responsible for the widespread and deliberate neglect of government's evolving pilgrimage shipping regulations. In January of 1886, the government of India passed a resolution making Thomas Cook and Son the official travel agents of the Hajj. We will cover about that more in our future episodes. But after some five years of private correspondence between Cook and high-ranking British officials and roughly two years of negotiation, the firm handed total control of all governmental functions related to Hajj. As a condition of the agreement between the two parties, the government of India attempted to foster a government-backed monopoly over the pilgrimage transportation industry for Thomas Cook and Son, while simultaneously it gave away the responsibility of regulating the entire industry to the firm as well. The brand of Thomas Cook was still synonymous with the idea of modern travel. The firm was rightly considered to have almost single-handedly inaugurated the era of mass tourism by recognizing and satisfying the global appetite of Europe's growing middle classes. In South Asian history, Cook is reputed as the lordly travel firm, and this has been doubly reinforced by the fact that Cook's operation in India was lauded both by the firm and by the highest echelons of British officialdoms as a means for encouraging elite travel between England and India. For example, in 1885, the Prince of Wales appointed the company as the official travel agent for the upcoming Colonial and Indian Exhibition, which was being held in London in connection with Queen Victoria's Golden Jubilee. But in sharp contrast to these celebrated episodes of princely travel, the Hajj was viewed as an anachronistic and even dangerous mode of travel. This was characterized by the movement of poor and increasingly out of step with the emerging norms of modern international travel and tourism. Given that Indian pilgrims were singled out as a source of epidemic cholera, both Britain 
and the government of India found themselves in a very awkward struggle against the tide of international opinion. During the height of cholera and during the 1860s and 1890s, Britain vehemently opposed the international quarantine regulations and stricter passport regulation proposed by the rest of Europe and the Ottoman Empire. In 1886, Wilson, the acting commissioner of police for Bombay, described the paralysis resulting from the dilemma. And I quote, The acting commissioner has the honor to report that a large number of Indian pilgrims are no doubt very poor and go to Hijaz not so much with an intention of maintaining themselves, but by begging, which they could do better in India but on the account of the sanctity of the place and with a feeling that if they died there, they would straight go to paradise. Some stay on waiting till death overtakes them and others having no funds to return to India are forced to beg. But beyond warning them, it seems impossible to prevent them from going there. Any interference in this matter on the part of British government would certainly be taken as an interference in their religion. Stop quote. So as a result of the government of India's post-1858 guarantee of non-interference in religious matters, colonial administrators repeatedly refused to impose any sort of means testing to restrict the ability of its poor pilgrims. As the resolution outlining Thomas Cook and Sons' appointment explains, the general consensus among the British officials was that the pilgrims should be required before proceeding on the voyage to deposit a sum of money which should be sufficient to cover the cost of their returning home. Despite this admission that such a regulation would prevent much misery and suffering, Local authorities in Bombay were vehemently opposed to the interference of any nature on the ground, that it might be misunderstood, misinterpreted, and as a result of this, instead of imposing a compulsory deposit system, the government decided to merely making a public notice in English, Hindi and Persian, warning the pilgrims that they should not undertake the journey unless they have at least 300 rupees in order to meet the expenses of quarantine on Cameron Island, on their journey back from Jeddah to Mecca and back and still be able to afford the cost of return ticket back to India. With this regard, the government of India's response was an anomaly. Eventually, the French in Algeria, the Dutch in Java, the Russian-controlled Muslim territories in Central Asia all adopted the same form of compulsory passport or deposit system in order to regulate the mobility of the pilgrims. Later, France, the Netherlands, Russia adopted a mandatory system of return tickets in order to prevent indigent pilgrims from becoming stranded in Hijaz without enough cash to pay for their passage back home. Even more curious was the fact that other British possessions, including Egypt and the trade settlements, eventually adopted a similar deposit and ticketing system, while the government of India completely refused to do the same. 
it is not that the government of india and the british officials were unaware of the advantages of the system as one of the british officials stationed in jeddah consul g bites complained in april 1875 to his colleagues in bombay as he wrote and i quote i have to remark that at the termination of the pilgrimage season a large number of british indian subjects are left at jeddah as vagrants and paupers entirely destitute of the means of subsistence many of them died due to starvation and the passport system which was adopted would have enabled the authorities of the port to which passports are granted to ascertain whether the pilgrimage pilgrim who present themselves for these documents are amply provided with funds for the purpose of performing their pilgrimage and returning to their country this precaution is always taken by dutch and french governments however the reason why subject of those nations are not left in the state of poverty and destitution to die in the streets end quote For nearly three decades following 1866 International Sanitary Conference, Britain declined to submit any international agreement proposing stricter quarantine procedures or in, in or an integrated system of compulsory documentary and ticketing practices. Instead, the government of India wanted an entirely separate package of reforms. as a result of these fears that fees attached to either passport or mandatory return tickets might be interpreted by the indian muslims as government attempts to bar poor muslims from making hajj the british sought a less direct path to pilgrim reforms like we spoke before the doctrine of indirect reform was primarily aimed at regulating the pilgrimage which was intertwined with shipping and brokerage industry so at the center of the problem was a new legislation which was created named the native passengers ship act of 1870 it was then amended in 1872 followed by 1876 1883 and 1887 culminating in 1895 pilgrims ship act These regulations were primarily aimed to restrict the number of passengers in a vessels in hope that in a hope of elevating instances of overcrowding the risk of cholera outbreaks would also be eliminated or at least mitigated these acts established clear limits on maximum number of passengers according to each ship registered on their estimated tonnage There were guidelines set for gradually increasing the minimum superficial space per passenger according to their accommodation in upper or lower decks in addition to addressing the most basic question of overcrowding these acts also stipulated mandatory provisions for the safety and welfare of passengers and the shipping company's crew and obligation towards the passengers the rules regulated that the ships the passenger ships should include access to cooking fuel clean water proper ventilation and fresh air clean latrines and medical supplies to make sure that the shipping companies were complying with the orders and to allow for easier surveillance of those sick pilgrims during the journey 
the act also required that the ship carrying more than 100 pilgrims which was most in many cases uh, the same to have a qualified medical officer with 1883 native passengers act sailing vessels which had long been in decline were officially banned from pilgrimage trade the most dramatic of the examples in the process came when britain relenting to decades of international pressure against the government of india's ardent protest signed the convention produced in 1894 the paris international sanitary conference the convention stipulated that minimum space of each adult pilgrim be raised from 9 to 21 feet in order to meet the new international standard for superficial space the government of india's 1895 pilgrimage ship act required that all vessels at least of those which weighed 500 tons to be able to achieve a speed of at least 8 knots under monsoon conditions as government standards for ship boards fittings anchors cables nautical instruments safety equipment and overall tonnage and speed during monsoon condition were gradually raised shipping companies were forced to either update their existing vessels or obtain newer ones although the government framed these reforms as either the product of international pressure or their own promotion of the best interest of pilgrims scholars have generally underemphasized the extent to which the legislation was designed to be least partial and to be a less challenge to muslim owned shipping companies Muslim shippers were comparatively limited access to capital and correspondingly older less well appointed and smaller vessels struggled to comply with these regulations during this period muslim shippers made several strategic adjustments first they found a niche in the market by catering to the lower end clientele second Smaller individual or family-owned firms pooled their resources either to charter a ship for pilgrimage season or to raise enough capital to starve off European competitors. While at the same time the government of India also engaged in parallel attack on Bombay and Calcutta's pilgrimage brokers, the ship owners depended on a large network of these brokers to attract business and to sell tickets. they worked for a small commission and these brokers were repeatedly accused of leasing pilgrimage through a mixture of misinformation intimidation bait and switch pricing scams worse still they also conspired with the ship owners to pack in more pilgrims per ship than was legally permitted here the times of india sketches a typical interaction between a pilgrim and brokers in bombay on arriving at port some by rail some by local steamers and others by foot they are they are all more or less waylaid by the wait sailors calling themselves crimps but who term themselves as hajj brokers or runners etc and any person who knows in and out of bombay or knows large seaport town will understand that these individuals make all kind of fair promises to entice pilgrims to their master's house and once their luggage of course with their luggage they cannot very well leave without buying a ticket from their owner as this pattern became more familiar the broker became the most ubiquitous villain 
in official description of pilgrimage trade. In an attempt to protect pilgrims from these unscrupulous brokers, in 1883, Bombay passed Pilgrims Protection Act, which required all brokers to obtain a license from the Bombay Police Commissioner. In conjunction with these licensing measures, a new position called the Protector of Pilgrims was created and was stationed at the port. This Muslim official was instructed to act as a special advocate providing information and assistance to intending pilgrims. Dr. Abdul Razak was sent to accompany India's pilgrimage consignment for the year 1878. He was later appointed as the Muslim Vice Consul of Jeddah in 1882. Two years later, additional Muslim Vice Consuls were stationed at Cameron Island for quarantine nearby the Yemeni port of Hudaydiyah. And this was in an attempt when the British officials realized that they needed more representation on the other side of the Indian Ocean, on the side of receiving these pilgrims in Hijaz. Through such and yet many more reforms that followed, the government of India tried to regulate the pilgrims and their experiences even close until the independence of India. And then the same was carried on by the independent government of India. We hope to cover more on the subject in future episodes. Which brings us to the end of today's podcast episode. And thank you so much for tuning in and listening. We hope to bring you more such exciting stories and legends every week. We are now, we also now have our own website, www.indiacolonized.com. The link is in the description where you can read and share our articles about India's rich colonial past. If you like what we cover and find it interesting, please subscribe or follow our podcast wherever you are listening from. Don't forget to like and follow us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. Until next time, stay safe, stay curious.